I remember the exact moment it was when I internalized an image of myself as completely mature when I was not mature at all. It was a dinner party that my parents were throwing in the spring of 1986. It was a few weeks before, a few weeks after my 16th birthday, and some friends and I had come in after seeing a movie, and it was sort of on towards the end of the evening, and let's say my parents and their friends, well, they were all in very, very high spirits, and they wanted us all to come in, all us youthful, wonderful people, and sit down and chat with them. We started talking about politics, and we started talking about movies, and I think I said something very intelligent that I took almost verbatim out of the New York Times or Newsweek, either about Bill Bradley and his work on the Tax Cutting Act of 1986 or about Woody Allen's Hannah and Her Sisters, that movie. It was one of those two things. And they just were eating it up. (laughs) These adults, oh, I felt so good. I felt so good. I felt like I was, you know, where I wanted to be. Me, who had always wanted to be older than I was, always wanted to be mature. And the next morning, my mom just, well, she just, she fed me ego crack. She told me that her friends, her friends had said, um, he's so mature. He's growing up so well. And he's so much more mature than his friends. Well, that just fed both my arrogance and my insecurity. It made me inordinately proud and also scared. I sounded smart, but that didn't mean that I was grown up. I had this image of myself that was very bright, very clever, mature, but I knew inside I really wasn't. Premature maturity is not real maturity at all. That's what today's movie for Spiritual Cinema is about, an education It is based on a true story and hews pretty closely to that true story by a well-known British journalist. First was an essay, then was a book, then was a movie. Her name is Lynn Barber. It is her coming-of-age story from 1962. It is her truthful retelling of an affair that she had between the ages of 16 and 18 with a man who was in his 30s. Now, where this movie is set, the time and the place, it is 1962 in Great Britain in a suburb of London. It is prior to Beatlemania. It is very much prior to the swinging 60s in London. It is prior to the advent of feminism, at least in its 1960s form. Although Europe is just across the English Channel, it seems, well, actually like whole worlds away. Paris represents liberation. England represents boredom. She yearns to get out the main character in the movie. They call her Jenny in the movie. She yearns to get out of her humdrum world, which she considers to be British suburbia. Now, at the same time, this movie comes before the dawn of 1960s feminism's strongest forms. It is also a deeply feminist story. There are tons of male teenage adolescent male stories. Actually, I'm not sure that Hollywood makes any other kind than this about young men trying to lose their virginity. (laughs) Pretty much every teenage male movie is about that these days, it seems. Well, this story is about her quest to lose her virginity as a young woman. But it's not only about that. It is about her growth as a person. It's about her trust and also her disillusionment. Jenny is in her last year of prep school at a hard-driving prep school where she is aiming her eyes on the prize. She will get to Oxford. Everyone tells her that because she is so bright, so clever, so pretty, so clever and pretty. That's what everyone tells her about herself. She is, in fact, incredibly smart. 
As for pretty well, she looks like a young Audrey Hepburn, so you can make your own judgment about that. But she yearns to have a wider world, a bigger world. And it comes in the form of a man named David, very different from her, older, as we said, worldly. He knows about arts and poetry and writing. He knows about restaurants and he drives an expensive foreign car. And he is perhaps what marks him most different. He is Jewish. He is continental. He is the image of everything that is different from Jenny's life. Now he's also a con man as well too. He convinces Jenny's parents against any kind of better judgment that it's okay that she might travel with him to Oxford because, of course, he went there and knows personally the great author C.S. Lewis. The parents reveal the superficiality of their own worldview when they are so impressed by David, so impressed that they would know he would know C.S. Lewis and could introduce their daughter to him. They project the image as better than the reality when they say it is far better that he knows a famous author rather than he is one. Completely superficial. He is stylish, and he's also, as we find out, a criminal. He is an art thief and a slumlord, playing upon the racism of his day by scaring the older white people who occupy his flats scaring them out, bringing in families from the British West Indies, and charging them exorbitant rates. Ultimately, and this is about the last I want to say about David, he reveals himself and the promises that he makes to be completely hollow. And of course, he is deeply creepy as well. I mean, this is a man in his 30s hanging around a 16, becomes a 17-year-old girl. This is a tone that the movie really tries to strike a balance between. On the one hand, very much the education in arts and culture that he offers Jenny is also, we can't look around it, an exploitation of the fact that she is not worldly. At the same time, the movie wants to say and does a very good job of saying that Jenny is not just a victim. She is not just a complete innocent Soon after, after she has arranged it, or at least she thinks that she arranges it, that they sleep together for the first time on her 17th birthday. This is her wish, lose her virginity on her 17th birthday. She doesn't appear as fallen or as deflowered or any of that kind of stuff. She is actually wonderfully funny and actually completely shifts the power dynamic between her and David. When she says afterward, all that poetry and all those songs about something that lasts no time at all. <laughs> if David were Homer Simpson, he would... Don't! <laughs> you can just see that he is completely deflated. Well, you know. <laughs> you get it. Jenny wants beautiful things. She knows, or at least she thinks she knows what she wants, but she does not know how to get them the right way. The mission statement of the movie, when actually she's talking about art, but actually could be a whole, whole worldview of life and where she is in her development, is that she is trying to learn what makes good things good. 
What gives them their quality of being good? You see, at first, the movie and education is about the education that her school pushes upon her and her parents wish for her and that she wants for herself, at least in part. It's about content, about what David gives her in terms of arts and culture. How much do I know? It's about content, but where the movie really gets its import from is that the real education is about character. It always is. It's not about a content. It's about the growth of our lives. It's not about how much do I know, it's about how wise do we become. Now, one of the things that marks that this British suburban world of the early 1960s is starting to change is that all the kids, they don't have the Beatles yet, remember, they're starting to read existentialism, at least the really bright ones. Sartre and Camus, and they're starting to identify how very terribly bourgeois their world is, and they're starting to move beyond it, they think. Well, actually, what the movie shed some light on is not so much those existentialists of just after the World War II period, but the first existentialist, the first thinker who focused, at least in the West, not so much as a philosopher on metaphysics, but on the subjectivity of what it is to experience meaning in life, and that is the great brooding Dane, one of my favorite philosophers, Soren Kierkegaard. If you ever read Kierkegaard 1, it's translated from the Danish, and it is very difficult to understand. And then Kierkegaard also does this other thing. He never wanted to claim his own thoughts, so he's always writing under different pseudonyms. So it's very difficult to understand what Kierkegaard was actually trying to say. He loved to play with thoughts. At the same time, he was a wonderfully deep thinker. He talked about that there are three fundamental ways to experience life, and the movie does a wonderful way of not referring to Kierkegaard, but sort of exemplifying these different ways. He talks about that there is the aesthetic, the ethical, and then finally his chosen preferred one, the religious. David is an example of the aesthetic. The aim of the aesthete's life is to have pleasure. Pleasure in the moment, for the moment, no other good other than, whether it's high culture or low culture, that is always to be filling the self with things that feel pleasurable. A low culture example of this from this past week, and I guess I admit to watching five minutes of it, and then I turned it off, is the season two premiere of Jersey Shore. <laughs> they are an extremely hedonistic low culture version, and you know, if you want to confess to me after we can confess to each other, I just confessed to all of you about watching some of it, and yes, I watched some of last season. It is, well, you know, it's ridiculous, it's trashy. It's too much fun to feel that superior to other people, you know. That's, but that's the aesthetic, is that truly it is only pleasure that matters. And even though what Jenny is after are highly elevated pleasures at the same time, that's the aesthetic worldview. It is only what feels good within ourselves that matters. That's why the word sophistication comes from the ancient Greeks, the sophists, who were known, perhaps unfairly, Plato and Socrates got the last word about this, and they were oppositional to Plato and Socrates. And because no one reads the sophists anymore, and they continue to read Plato, Plato thoughts and Socrates thought, sophists twisted all arguments using their wonderful rhetoric to prove to themselves that only everything they wanted they absolutely deserved. On the other side, there is the ethical. That is Jenny's parents her school teachers, the school headmistress, everyone driving her on and on and on. Do the right thing. Get the right good grades. Go to Oxford. It is your destiny. It is what you are supposed to do. 
You have duty. You have obligation. Within the ethical life, the obvious ethical life, Kierkegaard would say, there is also great moralism. A lot of you should being imposed upon us rather than the question asked from within us, what is the nature of what is good? There's also moralism as well, small thinking. The movie shows the inadequacies of both the aesthetic way of life and the purely ethical. One is amoral and fleeting and based upon lies. The other, at least in Jenny's case, is joyless and promises a kind of illusory security that only if you do the right things you will end up happy. I love that in our age, one of the thinkers I love the most who writes about happiness says that true happiness, different from just pleasure, true happiness, in the words of Tal Ben-Shahar, is pleasure and purpose together. Pleasure and purpose together, meaning and also the ability to experience lightness and joy in our lives. There is the third stage that Kierkegaard talks about, the religious or, as we might say, spiritual stage. Really what it gets at the heart at are two words I like to talk about and two words that I know are sort of in vogue when we talk about spiritual living, especially in our place, in our time. It gets to the heart of what we mean by abundance and what we mean by scarcity. One of our core beliefs here at Wellsprings, we call this gardens of abundance and joy. We believe that just as the caterpillar contains the seed of the butterfly yet to be, that we have the potential for new life within us. Abundance is about the invitation to look deeper, to understand that life is always changing, always becoming, always in the process of formation, that regardless of what we are faced with, there is always the potential for our growth. After David's betrayal, Jenny's father, who also has been taken in and conned by him, he apologizes to Jenny and asks for her forgiveness. He says, I wanted security for you. I wanted security for you in the form of Oxford. And then when David came along and he seemed to promise something even better, something flashier, he said, then I told you to go ahead and marry him. Now, her dad was right. Especially in 1962, there were objectively fewer choices for very bright young women like Jenny. But the only way that ways of life, ways of thought, that limit human flourishing, our capacity to become whole people, the only way those change in big ways and small ways is if people like Jenny see a vision that is not realized right there and right then and take the risk to become what they are not already. That is why the symbol of abundance at Wellsprings, one of them, is the caterpillar that becomes a butterfly. This is why Kierkegaard recommends, finally, the religious path in life. Because it is not about insecurity. Excuse me, it is not about security. The phrase leap of faith, which we hear all the time, Kierkegaard was the first one to use that. <laughs> any true meaning in life, any true sense of abundance is about recognizing that life at a very deep level is a risk. 
I would just ask you right now to think of times in your life when you may have leapt at the first image you thought of maturity, the first image you may have seen of happiness, and leapt at it because, in fact, you may not have actually believed that there was anything deeper than that. I can speak from my own experience. I had a 20-plus love affair year, love affair with alcohol, because I believed its image that it told me and wanted to believe it. That it was the way to be a man. It was the way to feel secure in myself. It was the way to experience the only pleasure that I thought I would ever get. But that image was all based upon scarcity. Of not truly believing in my heart whatever I might have spoken with my mouth. That truly I had the capacity to face what was there in my life and find a deeper abundance. Trust in life. It is the belief in abundance in action. Like that caterpillar becoming a butterfly, we, all of us, have the capacity to transform and to grow our lives. A deep belief in the nature of abundance and in the abundance of our own nature. What it does is it places the welcome mat out before us so that we can meet our lives. In our life as it is. The great mystical poet Rumi, in one of his many, many prayers, poems to God, said this. If God said to me, Rumi, pay homage to everything that has helped you enter my arms. I answered, there would not be one experience of my life. Not one thought, not one feeling, not any act that I would not bow to. There would not be one experience of my life, not one thought, not one feeling, not any act that I would not bow to. This recognition that everything matters, that we can truly lay out the welcome mat of our lives to our lives, that we can witness who we are and see an abundance there. Not racing ahead to the so-called important things or not complaining about how just boring things are and someday will be released. This past week, I left my office sort of late, probably about 9.20 or 9.30 at night. And we had just had our 2.0 session about death, our listening to our live session about death, about the one thing that we all absolutely have to face, no matter how many good times we have had and no matter how many good deeds we have done. This one is escapable reality. In summertime, of course, the light could still be seen towards the west. It was thankfully not 110 degrees, closer to 75. It was a beautiful evening. I wanted to get home, watch some baseball. Then all of a sudden, I heard, close your eyes, listen with me. I heard it. An insect symphony. There for me to recognize if I could. Revelation is unsealed. The burning bush is blazing everywhere. Only if we lay out the welcome mat. 
It takes abundant time to get to see things and get to know things and even more to get to love things as they are, not just to believe the image of them or the representation of them. It takes time to really love someone. It takes just a short amount of time to possess something. All we need is a little bit of money and we buy it. And if we don't have the money, we put it on credit. It is easy to possess something. But we can only love something, only love someone which is to say really witness to what they are and what it is if we understand what abundance is. After Jenny's trust is betrayed, it is this kind of attitude that leads her back to life and not just a complete disillusionment that everyone is a liar. His dad, after he has confessed his fear and the negative effect it had in her life, He's standing on the other side of the door when it almost seems as if she's packing to leave. Maybe like in the Beatles song, she's leaving home because she thinks there is no place there left for her. And he says, I know you want to talk to me right now, so I'm just going to leave something for you. And it's a wonderfully middle-class British form of communion. Tea and biscuits. (laughs) Just a wonderful offering that still, when you want to be fed... I am sorry, and I am here. There's an artist in the movie who Jenny really loves, an artist who I knew nothing about before this movie called Burne Jones from the 1800s. And early on with David and his sort of gang of upper-class ne'er-do-wells that are at an art auction and bidding on all the beautiful things that they want to own, all the images of the good life. And one of those beautiful things that she once wanted to possess, but now understands it at the end of the movie, is a painting called The Tree of Forgiveness. She has been disillusioned by her teachers, by herself, by David, who doesn't even ask for forgiveness. He just scoots because <laughs> he doesn't have enough character to even recognize that he's done something wrong. Forgiveness with her family as well, too. An image that she once wanted to possess because it was a beautiful thing, she now possesses it in her heart because she has gained that perspective of knowing what it is to struggle and learning an abundant and deeper wisdom. I'll close with the actual words of Lynn Barber. Her David was a guy named Simon. She writes, what did I get from Simon? An education. The things that my parents always said they wanted me to have. I learned about expensive restaurants and luxury hotels and foreign travel. I learned about antiques and films and classical music. But actually, there was a much bigger bonus than that. My experience with Simon entirely cured my craving for sophistication. By the time I got to Oxford, other than my education there, I wanted nothing more than to meet kind, decent, straightforward boys my age, no matter if they were virgins or no matter if they were gauche and didn't know the right places to go to. To learn to fall in love abundantly is to cultivate in ourselves that habit of spirit, that habit of soul, 
that is learning to see beyond merely the representation of things down into their worth and their value. The great thing about learning to see in this way is that things don't become something else. They just become what they are. It is we who change. It is us who become the genuine article. And it is our lives that take on the quality of being the real deal. Amen. May you live in blessing. Let's pray together. Oh, that all of us in spirit and in sensibility may learn to walk in the deepest paths on the stages of life's way. That we may not discount pleasure, for it is a good thing. That we may not discount the desire to be good and to be connected, for they are good impulses. But to recognize that in holding these two together, there is a deeper path before us. May each of us in our own way, in our own time, in the way that we feel called to lay out that welcome mat of our life to our life. May we learn not to divide that which we would put far, far away from us because it is not us and only that meager, meager portion that we would want to keep to ourselves, but instead say with that spirit of love, of generosity towards self and other, of true abundance, that we are in life and life is ours. May we learn to walk this deep path. May we learn to love this deep love. May we become whole. Amen.